Let us pray. Loving God, healing river, send down your waters upon this land. For the places where we and this land are parching, where we are thirsting, may your seed of peace, of love, of justice grow in this barren ground, in the places in our hearts where we need your presence. And may the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If this morning you came in and saw the order of worship and were alarmed by the mugshot, you're not alone. I was alarmed in putting it on there. There's another photo of Dr. King looking out the window of a jail cell through the bars and contemplating, which might have given us a more comforting thought. But I thought it was important on this day that we remember the indignities of the civil rights movement, the indignities that Dr. King endured, particularly as we as a congregation have spent some time thinking about mass incarceration and the new Jim Crow. And I also thought about this story from the book of Acts about the tradition of being jailed or imprisoned for your beliefs, a, a tradition that actually goes on all over the world. If you want to look at Amnesty International's website, you'll see just how many people are currently imprisoned for their beliefs, beliefs that many of us would most likely support. But I want to turn to the book of Acts for a little bit before I turn to Dr. King and particularly to his letter from the Birmingham jail. The power of this story of Paul and Silas, like any good scripture, lies in its ability, I believe, to motivate us, to speak to us again and again, to hold a mirror up to our own lives or a lens through which we can make sense of the past, the present, and the future. It's a story of Paul and Silas trying to do missionary work, the work of spreading the gospel of love, the gospel of Christ, and being caught up short by a slave girl who has a spirit of divination, or as it sounds in the Greek, the spirit of the python. It comes from a pagan myth of a dragon who's able to see into the future. And it's a little shaky there of just why Paul is so annoyed, except that she's following them day after day and nagging them. And he can see that she's possessed of a spirit that is ungodly, that is unhelpful. And he casts it out of her immediately. And the people who owned this girl were so upset that they had Paul and Silas beaten and tortured against their rights as Roman citizens and imprisoned. And then you hear the story of them singing in the jail cell, keeping their faith alive through hymns and songs of a miraculous, crazy earthquake happening that breaks open the jail, of them being invited to the household of the jailer, and eventually holding the magistrates accountable for the wrongs and the indignities they have given toward these two missionaries. I did some very simple, straightforward literary analysis and realized that if we hold this story up to the lens of Dr. Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement, there are some clear and obvious outlines. 
The slave girl is like the African-American people in this country from its founding, who suffered under slavery and then Jim Crow. The, the divination that she does for her owners is much like the underpaid, underfed, undereducated work that African-Americans were relegated to in this country for years and years and years. And the way in which her owners use her for economic gain. And Paul and Silas are like so many good leaders who led us, A. Philip Randolph, W.E.B. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey, Dr. King, Ralph Abernathy, Andrew Young, Rosa Parks, Jesse Jackson, Bayard Rustin, Malcolm X, and countless others who are willing to call out the craziness that was allowing this little girl to be used in this way or our fellow citizens to be used in ways that oppressed and subjugated them. These civil rights leaders called America to its best values of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness and equality for all, and also called all of us who claim the name Christian to our best values of love and prophetic truth and speaking that truth to powerful people. And the prison, breaking open by an earthquake, we might say, in a miraculous way, the civil rights movement caused an earthquake, an earthquake that rolled up to the desk in the Oval Office and the halls of the Capitol and resulted in the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Acts of the 60s. Dr. King was jailed or arrested some 30 times and like others, he was beaten or some were tortured and killed in the ways that our government allowed through sheriffs, police forces, the FBI and more. And we saw in our own story, just as Paul and Silas were invited to the table of the jailer, we saw more and more African-Americans invited to the table of power in this country. Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme Court, Andrew Young would become the mayor of Atlanta and later a U.S. ambassador. Ralph Bunch would serve as U.N. Secretary General, Condoleezza, Ambassador Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, Ruth Simmons is the president of Brown University who called that institution to its slave supporting history and to accountability. And of course, Barack Obama as the first African-American president of the United States. But as we have read books like The New Jim Crow, it makes us wonder if somehow the prison has been rebuilt under our noses under our feet. When we read from Michelle Alexander that more African-Americans are currently incarcerated than were enslaved in 1850, or that discrimination in housing, education, employment, and voting rights, which many of us thought we wiped out by the civil rights laws of the 60s, is now perfectly legal for anyone labeled a felon. And that we have been rebuilding the prison in out-of-the-way, underground ways. <clears throat> when we hear again about police department after police department mistreating, abusing our African-American sisters and brothers, practices that have been going on for some time, but have come increasingly into the light with the ever-presence of the handheld camera and YouTube, we wonder what improvements have been made. And I wonder, even though we have enshrined Dr. King with a national holiday and museums and quote him in classrooms, when 
A bronze bust of his head sits in the Oval Office amid George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. I wonder if by immortalizing him, by enshrining him, we may have run the risk of lessening the vitality of his words and actions of the movement he inspired. Does this national holiday mean anything more to us than a three-day weekend? Have we imprisoned his values in new systems of racism and oppression? And I wonder about the ways we have not been able to break the racism that lives in our hearts that still resides in the soul of America, a way of being and thinking that ensnares all of us, regardless of our skin color. I wonder, as the image on our cover of worship suggests, if we have been rejailing the prophets. Now, Dr. King remains the best example, I believe, that we have from the last century of a leader who was able to channel his charisma, his intellect, his faith in a way that compelled so many of us. And so I turn to the letter from the Birmingham jail. That picture is actually from the time he was thrown into jail in April of 1863 for, assist for being a part of demonstrations in Birmingham. I believe, as I wrote to you this week, that this letter could stand to be a part of the canon of great American documents, along with our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, and the Declaration of Independence. I believe that this letter could stand in our own biblical canon as the letters of Paul and James and the letters to the Hebrews stand. One of the immortal lines in this letter is that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Now, what precipitated this letter was that three months earlier, eight prominent liberal Alabama clergymen published a letter in the newspaper, an open letter, urging King to allow the battle for civil rights in the local and federal courts, just to allow to play out, warning that his continued nonviolence resistance would incite more civil disturbances. But Dr. King responded forcefully, beautifully in this letter, and he did it out of his Christian convictions. I'm gonna quote the letter quite liberally here. Here's one of the things he wrote. I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the eighth century biblical prophets left their little villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the apostle Paul left his little village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to practically every hamlet and city of the Greco-Roman world, I too am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my particular hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. He linked the civil disobedience that he practiced, the civil disobedience for which they were criticizing him, to the forebearers of his faith. Just like our children and youth did last March, he reminded them of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refusing to obey the laws of the evil king Nebuchadnezzar because a higher moral law was involved in the story. He links it to the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks before submitting to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. He says that if he had lived in Hitler's Germany, he would have aided and comforted his Jewish brothers even though it was illegal. He said in that day, in the 60s, if he lived in a communist country where certain principles dear to the Christian faith were suppressed, 
he would openly advocate disobeying these anti-religious laws. He believes that civil disobedience and resistance are indeed Christian values. Something that was pretty radical to write in the 60s, but I think is probably no less radical for you and me to think about here today in 2015. They branded him an extremist, and again, he reached into his Christian convictions, and he said, I actually have gradually gained a bit of satisfaction from being considered an extremist. Was not Jesus an extremist in love? Saying, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you. Was not the prophet Amos an extremist for justice when he said, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream? Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel of Jesus Christ when he wrote, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus? Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Was not John Bunyan an extremist? I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a mockery of my conscience. Was not Abraham Lincoln an extremist? This nation cannot survive half slave and half free. Was not Thomas Jefferson an extremist, he asked. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, all people, are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, he asks, our rights, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or will we be extremists for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice, or will we be extremists in the cause of justice? Now we have seen in the intervening years how many of our conservative Christian sisters and brothers have used some of these same tactics of their own faith experience in Christianity to espouse values that we in this congregation might not value of eliminating people from the circle, of casting judgment, of enduring oppression and the status quo, at least in our eyes. And yet I believe we, who probably for the most part consider ourselves moderate to left of moderate, need to reach into these convictions a little bit more when we speak out about injustice in our midst. I believe that we need to become impatient about this. Dr. King addressed this as well as the clergymen in Alabama were asking him to wait for this to play out in the courts, to just quietly and carefully watch the time. He said this, we know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have never yet engaged in a direct action movement that was well-timed, according to the timetable of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every African-American with a piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. It has been a tranquilizing thalidomide relieving the emotional stress for a moment only to give birth to an ill-formed infant of frustration. We must come to see with the distinguished jurist of yesterday that justice too long delayed is justice denied. 
We have waited for more than 340 years for our God-given and constitutional rights. At this time, he wrote, the nations of Asia and Africa are moving forward with jet-like speed toward the goal of political independence and will creep, and we still creep, at horse and buggy pace toward the gaining of a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. I guess it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. And finally, he says of the church, there was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators, as we heard today in the book of Acts. But they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. But things are different now. And remember, this was written in 1963. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before if the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. I meet young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. So as I remember these things with you from Dr. King, writing from a jail cell to his, quote, quite moderate friends, who he actually said he felt like were the biggest detractors from justice moving forward through their mildness, through their caution, I'm aware of the good work our stretching into justice ministry has done along with our adult deepening team of asking us to start the conversation to ask what it means in this day and age when we have been retroactively imposing a new Jim Crow under our own noses through the laws of our own legislators and rulers. For us to begin that conversation and also to advocate for changing the tide of mass incarceration in this country. And of those who have delved in the book realize it is a big problem. It is a incalculable problem. It is a problem that requires a change in people's hearts before it can really involve a change in the laws. 
I'm aware of how the civil rights movement inspired the gay rights movement. I'm aware of how the civil rights movement and the rhetoric of Dr. King means for people who are minorities anywhere a way of getting a place at the table. I'm aware of what it means in our current culture for immigrants who might be demonized in our midst for their presence in our country. I'm reminded of Dr. King's words that we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow provincial outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider. Now last month, those who read The New Jim Crow gathered in our parlor and had a wide-ranging conversation about the effect of this book on them and what we can do going forward. One of the ideas that has come out of that is that we would put a banner out that says Black Lives Matter, just like our Unitarian Universalist friends have done at First Parish and like many of our colleagues have done in Somerville and Cambridge and other places. So that conversation is going forward and will be discussed by our council. We are doing advocacy in our state house and across the nation, led by members of our Stretching Into Justice team. But I believe also you and I need to dig, as Dr. King did, into what about our Christian tradition inspires us to speak up for the least among us, for those who are mistreated, for those who are oppressed, for those who keep being refused a place at the table. I believe it is out of this Christian conviction that we are called to do this. I'm reminded that it was a Unitarian pastor here in Massachusetts who said, and then repeated by Dr. King, that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And you and I are the activists, the people who work for God for this justice. So I believe we all need to get in on the conversation, not just here in church, but in the conversation with our friends and neighbors outside about how are we going to keep Dr. King's legacy, the civil rights legacy, alive in our own hearts, in our own minds, but in the policies and laws of this nation. We have to remember, as Dr. King did, that it is a step-by-step process, looking at the causes, looking at those things that have brought us to where we are, it requires patience, forbearance, deep convic conviction, faith, and hope. If we have any hope of unjailing the prophet, whose powerful words inspired a nation, who has taken a place in the pantheon of great Americans, then it is our duty, our job, to make this so. May God help us. May God show us the way. Amen.